Good morning, everyone. Today we're reading from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. It will be on the screen behind me or in the Bibles on page 1064. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever come from heaven, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, they may, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thank you, Corin. It would be great to keep that passage open in front of you. Well, um, let me give you a classic statement of human faith. I say this to myself a lot, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, all right? We say it to reassure, to try and convince ourselves, Uh, we want to believe it, and sometimes we really do. After all, it's been how many millennia, Uh, and human hope continues to be a thing, it's going to be okay. When you make that statement of faith, what are you putting your faith in? Um, If you were to make that statement and believe it, 
what would assure you that it's not just another human cliche? We humans put our faith in all sorts of things all the time to give us confidence to just take the next step. It's going to be okay. I've prepared. I know what I'm doing. It's going to be okay. I can handle this. It's going to be okay. The doctors know what they're doing. It's going to be okay. It just has to be. It won't shock you to hear the preacher say that if we want sure hope, our faith needs to be in Jesus, the saviour of the world. And I hope that if you're not persuaded about that right now, uh, you might be willing to open yourself up to being maybe pleasantly surprised and challenged today. But if you are persuaded that we need to trust in Jesus, you'll probably know that the saying, just trust Jesus, can feel a little bit frustrating in the anxieties and grief and ambitions of life. Bit of a Christian cliche. It might raise questions for you like, what does real faith in Jesus actually look like? And how do I know if I've got it? That's the question that John invites us into at the end of chapter 2, just before our passage today. Uh, Let me read out the last couple of verses, um, and I've got a slide as well, thanks Mel. I'm going to read from a slightly more old school English translation, where the word man refers to humanity in in general. I'm a fan of the more gender-inclusive translation in our church Bibles, because I think it's faithful to the meaning of the Greek text. But one thing you occasionally miss is when the author deliberately repeats a word. And let me show you what I mean. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Then verse 1 of our passage, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So there's such a thing as having an inauthentic or inadequate kind of faith in Jesus, the kind of faith that's based more on surface appearances than a real relationship with him. And Jesus thinks it's a very human response to him. And Nicodemus is the human we meet who puts it on full display. And as this man, Nicodemus, meets with Jesus, we find that the odds against things being okay for humans are way worse than we think. But the hope Jesus brings to that situation is much more real, much more life-changing than we might dare to believe. So let's meet Nicodemus, this human being who introduces us to a very human problem. It's point one in your outlines. Good on the outside, lost on the inside. If you're familiar with the Bible or have been around churches a bit, you're probably used to seeing the Pharisees as the baddies. And there's good reason for that. But let's not forget The idea of a Pharisee being one of the baddies would have been an absolute shock to your average person in Jerusalem. They were what we would today call genuinely good people.
people. They were the wise ones people looked up to, dedicated to the study of the scriptures. And verse 10 singles Nicodemus out as kind of like the principal of the Bible college, like the teacher of Israel. But it wasn't just about head knowledge. The Pharisees were known for their passion. Everyone knew that they made big sacrifices for God in a life of radical obedience. This is a community leader we're talking about. Nicodemus goes up another notch in our estimation in verse 2 when we see he's been impacted by the signs Jesus has been performing. As readers of John, we know that Jesus has begun revealing the glory of God himself to people so they might believe. And it seems that Nicodemus is onto it. Nicodemus is the best of us, the best of us. If anyone has a chance of getting the whole God thing right, of making it to heaven's gates and finding his name on the guest list, it's him. And you might picture him in his dignified robe thinking, I'll be kind. I'll go and pay Jesus a visit and encourage him. And verse 2, he comes confident, almost like to appear, saying, we've seen what you're doing, and you're doing a great job. God is with you, brother. And so Jesus' reply is a rude shock. You need to be born again. Now, not to brag, but when I was in year 10, I actually won the Christian Service Award at school. And I remember getting up from my school chapel pew, walking past my friends, red as a beetroot, to get this award. And they were having a good old laugh about it because the idea of Jamie being a Christian was that ridiculous. Because they saw how I acted when adults weren't around. But I guess the teachers saw, you know, a nice kid. I think I can claim that. You know, perhaps more involved than most in extracurricular activities from a Christian family who said yes to helping out with stuff and was often kind towards other students. My friends were totally onto it, though. I might have looked like a Christian, but I was far from it. And they were probably thinking about how I swore and liked heavy metal music. But I was thinking about how in my heart of hearts, I was a million miles away from the God my parents taught me about. The dark thoughts that I harbored. I was a polite kid, but I kind of hated the idea that there was a God who would hold me accountable for the way that I've been treating him and the world. And no amount of early morning chapel band rehearsals was going to change that. The good things on the outside did a passable job of covering up the fact that I, like Nicodemus, was totally lost. Could you play that game? If the faith that gets you into heaven was all about what you bring to the table, would you be able to pile up a decent list of the you know, things to get you the most likely to get into heaven award? I reckon you probably could. 
if only it made a difference to the heart of the issue. Now, if I felt like that walking up you know, this, to the stage at chapel, imagine how Nicodemus must have felt listening to Jesus. He's supposed to be the leader of God's people and he doesn't know a thing about eternal life. It's appropriate that this conversation happens under the cloak of night because Nicodemus is in the dark in more ways than one. Is that why he came out? You know, for one of those late night chats where the pretense finally drops away? To voice the thought that leaders everywhere have, you know, just quietly, I have no idea what I'm doing, you know? Others look up to me. I just hope they don't look too closely. I tell others about eternal life, but I don't even know if it's real. We can look at Nicodemus with this kind of religious bravado and think, oh, what a hypocrite. Actually, I think he's doing exactly the right thing here. And that is he's coming to Jesus and letting Jesus expose the issue. How must have he felt though? You know, it starts off with, hey, we like you, leads to, you don't even know who I am. And in fact, if you're ever going to see heaven, you need to start all over. Jesus peels back the layer on this human being so that we might ask, how confident are you that if there's a heaven, you're going to be there? The default human answer seems to be something like, I'll get there because good people get to heaven. Like Nicodemus, we can point to our list of good things, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And even if we're too humble to put our confidence in you know, being a good person, we can at least soothe ourselves by saying, well, I'm not as bad as some. But returning to this nighttime chat, it would be a very courageous thing indeed to admit that the default human answer isn't as solid as we like to pretend. To acknowledge that you might actually need some help. I counted six times in the first nine verses of John 3 where the word able or possible or can comes up. Jesus is challenging us to admit, I am not able. Only God is. Now, I hope this pop culture reference isn't too obscure. Uh, Does anyone remember the show Seinfeld? I just wanted to show the youth that I am actually old. Okay, it's an iconic show though, right, Seinfeld? I like it because it plays out what would happen if we let our most self-obsessed instincts run the world. You know, these four single people in the New York dating scene just finding a million reasons to break up with different people. Okay, you know, he uses too many exclamation marks. Uh, She stabs each individual corn kernel with her fork instead of scooping them, okay? There's this scene in like season nine of Seinfeld where Kramer is talking to Elaine about his latest scheme for making it with his girlfriend. 
And Elaine looks at Kramer and says, I've got to be honest with you, Kramer. You might be more than just a couple of tweaks away from a healthy relationship. Right? The brutal truth. That's what Jesus faces Nicodemus with when it comes to God. You're more than just a couple of tweaks away. But unlike Seinfeld, Jesus offers a solution. And it's not to put a new set of clothes on the human being, but to put a new human in the clothes. New birth by the Spirit. Point two, a fresh start. Things are less okay than we might like to think. But Jesus doesn't leave it at you'll never see God's kingdom. He wants you to be sure that not only will you see it, but that you are living in it now. Jesus points to three keys of the kingdom, if you will, and they're not status, goodness and wisdom. In fact, they're three things outside of Nicodemus. And if they're outside of Nicodemus, then we better listen up. First key comes in verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. More than a tweak, indeed. Okay, brand new life from above, new birth from the Spirit. And although that sounds kind of weird, Nicodemus shouldn't have been surprised. Back in Ezekiel 36, God promised to sprinkle clean water on his wayward people. He promised a new heart and a new spirit. Because that's what this whole issue is about. No matter how many extracurricular activities we do, our hearts are a million miles from the God who loves us. But God promises to wipe our records of rebellion clean. And the same spirit through whom the universe was created will recreate us, replace our stubborn hearts with hearts that beat to the rhythm of our creator's word. A fresh start. But here's the challenge. It won't involve pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It has to be a gift that comes from God. That's hard for human beings who like to be in control. Um, but just a quick poll. Um, how many of us had a say in our own birth? Did anyone kind of manage to have a quiet word to mum and dad? Like, I could bring some great things to this family. The new birth is up to God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying he wants you to have it. Will you receive it? Second key outside of Nicodemus comes in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The teacher of Israel's mind would have gotten the reference straight away. Numbers 21 records the wilderness wandering of God's people, they grew impatient and spoke against God. We wish we were slaves in Egypt again. And it was one of those moments in history where God drew a clear line in the sand so that we might know just how horrific it is to turn your back on the God who loves you and provides all good things for you. God sent venomous snakes amongst the people and many died in the judgment. 
But God in his love and mercy provided a way to be saved in numbers. He told Moses, make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And that day, as people looked at that metal snake with the desperate, unqualified faith of those who knew their lives depended on it, this image of their judgment, they were rescued from death. And Jesus is here saying to Nicodemus, I, the son of man from heaven, came to earth to be like that snake. He doesn't spell it out, but the shadow of the cross hangs over this conversation. The day Jesus was lifted up on that instrument of hell on earth to offer heaven to all who would look to him. Not with the faith of collegial respect. No, Nicodemus, the problem is too bad for that. But you cling to me with that desperate trust and I won't let you down. Final key comes from verse 16. The Father's love. Love for a world that stands condemned already. Where even the best of us are miles from God. The Father's love for that world, our world, drove him to send his son. Not to hand out awards, but to save anyone who will look at him. Good on the outside, lost within. Jesus offers new life from the inside out. And did you notice that it all depends on what God does? Spirit, Son, and Father. The only human action that Jesus asks for in this passage is believing. If you trust the cross of the Son and rely on the love of the Father, you can know for sure that you've been born again by God's Spirit. That kind of simple, desperate faith is a miracle of the new creation. A miracle that changes everything. I remember reading this passage uh, with a young Christian guy a few years ago. Uh, He was a guy who loved Jesus, no doubt. But you could see that he was struggling to kind of be all in for him. He was a super gifted guy but seemed really hesitant to pour himself into serving and ministry and things like that. Now, what did this young guy need? I didn't really know. It was tempting to think maybe a good pep talk about putting Jesus first. But here's what I saw as he read about Nicodemus for the hundredth time. He reflected to me, hey, I've just realized so much of my life has been about proving myself, which is so ridiculous when I read about what God has done for me here. That was quite a profound light bulb moment. You know, he didn't need to drum up more passion from within. He needed stronger confidence in what God had done for him. It's simple, but I reckon I saw how that realization freed this young guy up to throw himself into serving Jesus wholeheartedly. 
Hey, I hope you're hearing loud and clear from Jesus today. The keys to the kingdom don't lie within us. And that is the best thing ever. It must have been humbling, even humiliating for Nicodemus to admit that. But wow, just to have a rest from the exhausting task of trying to prove yourself. And to realize that God isn't waiting for me to pull my socks up higher. He's waiting for me to look at the cross and ask for the help that he longs to give. Jesus knows what's in a human. He knows how deeply ingrained that good on the outside approach is for all of us. As we've been listening to this nighttime chat, it might be that you're grasping in a new way or perhaps the first time that entering eternal life is not about what you do for God. It's about what he has done for you. And if you've been stirred by that thought, can I encourage you? It is so freeing to know that your hope lies outside of yourself. A great next step would be to ask for outside help. Ask God, you don't have to tell anyone else, just in the quiet of your own heart, I want to know this life. I know that many in the room today are deeply thankful that your place in the kingdom is secured by the cross. If that's you, you will know that the prove yourself way of life often beckons. Here's the question I've been wrestling with this week. What am I putting my confidence in each day? Is it what the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have achieved for me? Or practically speaking, is it something else? A diagnostic question that has helped me think about that is, what influences how I feel about my future and my standing before God today? I know that deep down it's the cross, but what dominates how I feel about my future? Is it my moral performance? That would be very human. And can I add, um, I'm probably biased, but I think our church is blessed with more than its fair share of just lovely people, which is wonderful. But the risk is we'll start putting our confidence in what I've done for God this week, how well our church is going, how I'm going in those godly disciplines. Those things might be great, fruits of the Spirit's work in our lives, but we deprive ourselves of great joy when we treat them as the root of our confidence? Or does your everyday sense of confidence or lack thereof come from more from kind of how emotionally connected you feel to God at the moment? Again, not a bad thing to be aware of, but the risk is those things are all about us, Let today be a reminder that without God stepping into our lives by the Spirit, we'd be nowhere. Which means we can experience a confidence that doesn't depend on what I can drum up within myself. Even good people need to be born again 
and can be because of the cross. Which leads us to point three, the human dilemma. Could I step out? John leaves us with these sobering words, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The sobering part is, when we think about people loving darkness instead of light, the person lingering in our minds isn't a criminal doing a back alley deal. It's Nicodemus, the community leader, who came to Jesus at night and showed just how little he knew of God. And the dilemma Nicodemus faces is this, will he stay in the dark? Will he leave that conversation feeling judged and heaping up arguments in his mind about all the good that he has done? Or will he come into the light? Allow his subtle but very real rejection of God to be exposed. Acknowledge that he too needs cleansing. That's the dilemma that we all actually face. Whether you've got a criminal record or a Christian service award, or maybe both, every human being needs a fresh, fresh start with God. And all of this means that rejecting Jesus is the moral issue that matters most. Nicodemus was a very smart and very good man, but totally lost. He faces the prospect of meeting God in person, Jesus, and saying no thanks to eternal life. If you're on the fence about Jesus, can I ask, is it possible that the barriers that are keeping you there May they, maybe they're not intellectual barriers. Maybe deep down you've been on the fence for a long time, waiting to be fully convinced or to feel something that you haven't felt yet. Could it be that you've seen that Jesus has a claim on your life and part of you just doesn't want to change? That's the dilemma. Keep asking the intellectual questions, but at some point you will need to hand the mess of your life over to Jesus. That's the big issue, and can I say that is the most freeing thing you will ever do. Jesus is pretty blunt in this passage, hey? It's striking, actually, because in chapter 4, we see Jesus interact so gently with someone who was far from God and they knew it. But in chapter 3, Jesus saves his hardest word for this very religious teacher who thinks he's fine. And maybe that feels a bit unfair. Like, shouldn't Jesus at least give him some credit? But the terrifying but beautiful truth of Christianity is that it is about something so much deeper than our good behavior. It's about our deepest thoughts and loyalties. 
as a husband, uh, it would be possible for me to do lots of good things for my wife, maybe even put other husbands to shame with the amount of flowers that I buy. But I would be doing that from a very dark place if I was doing all those things while sleeping with someone else. It's a horrible example, but it captures something of what all human beings, even the Nicodemuses of the world, have done with God. Deep down, our deepest loyalties are elsewhere. It's not that we can't do great things, but at the end of the day, we're in the dark when it comes to God. In a room full of so many kind, well-taught and generous people, I have to ask, do you need to hear the hard word from Jesus today? Have your deepest loyalties been with something or someone else other than Jesus? Have you been living under the harsh rule of prove yourself instead of clinging to the cross? Deep down, only you can answer that. No matter how dark things are on the inside for you today, please hear me say, Jesus is offering you a fresh start right now. New birth. Or perhaps today is just the day you need to recenter your joy on the cross. Jesus is frank with Nicodemus, but here is Jesus offering eternal life to a Pharisee. Much harder soil than those who know they're sinners, but that's Jesus' offer. Come into the light, Nick. And let's not forget the most famous Pharisee in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the greatest advocate for being saved by grace and not by works. We need that grace to set us free. And in that freedom, Jesus calls us to keep bringing every dark corner of our lives into his exposing, loving, cleansing light. Even the sins that deep down we kind of like. So will Nicodemus stay in the dark, clutching his status, goodness and wisdom? Or will he come into the light? We actually don't get to hear Nicodemus's reply. Uh, all we get are two little tantalizing hints later in John. In chapter 7, Nicodemus stands up to the other Pharisees when they're trying to arrest Jesus. And he's there in chapter 19, bravely helping to give the crucified Jesus a king's burial. Could it be that he looked to the Son of Man lifted up and found life after all? I think John kind of leaves us hanging because he wants us to ask, well, how would I respond? Am I going to keep telling myself that it's all going to be okay because I've got this? I've got my achievements. I've got my performance, my status. Anxiously trying to prove my worth and to earn the love of others and ultimately God. Or will I humbly step into the light, admitting that I need to start again, accepting the love of the Father, the love that is yours on your best day 
and your worst, knowing that you are not the same as you were, that your new life has begun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today admitting that we need outside help and acknowledging again that if you didn't step in by your spirit, we would be nowhere. Thank you for stepping in. Please help each of us to find deep, deep confidence, not in our wobbly performance, but in the unshakable work of the spirit of recreation, the certain cleansing of the cross, and your fatherly love of the unworthy. Amen.